Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 30, if you'll join me there. Tonight we'll finish up our study in 1 Samuel together. As we left off last time, we saw that David, returning back to the territory where he and his men and the families that were with them were staying the area of Ziklag, we saw that in the beginning of chapter 30, that as they returned after having been away for a few days, that upon arriving back that they had discovered that the area there in Ziklag and throughout the south had been invaded by the Amalekites who had come in and who had taken captive the women and the children and who had burned uh, everyone, or not everyone, but everything really that was there. And uh, when David and his men came back to discover this, it tells us that upon recognizing what had happened, that they lifted up and their voices, they wept until they had no more power to weep. So there's this great concern that comes upon them. They realize that their wives, their children, their families, all of their Uh, material possessions have been stolen and taken away they have no idea where they've been taken to that everything that was there had been burned with fire and after a time of really being in great distress and David then turning to the Lord and drawing the strength from the only place he could which was from the Lord himself David began to pray and to ask God uh, if it would be his will for David to pursue uh, that troop and whether or not he would overtake them if he did. And God gave him that word of direction as well as a promise telling him there in chapter 30, verse 8, David, pursue for you shall surely overtake them. And without fail, God promised that he would recover all. Now, that was an incredible promise if you think about the reality that at this point still, David has no idea even where these Amalekites have headed off to. Uh, So all he finds is that their uh, homeland has been ravaged, it's been invaded, things have been burnt and left in an ash heap, smoking as he returns, and that thinking the worst, the wives, the children have been taken away. He doesn't really have a lot of details, and he certainly doesn't have a little note left behind if you're looking for us head west. I I mean, he has nothing of awareness And so it tells us that God gives him this promise and he begins to move out on the assurance that God is leading him in this way. As we often do, God gives us a promise and kind of like Abraham, it says that by faith, Abraham obeyed and and went in a direction uh, and he had no idea where he was going and where the destination was going to be. But God leads us by progressive revelation. And that's exactly what happened for David and his men as they began to travel. It tells us they went about 16 or so miles to the Brook Resor and there David Uh, recognized about 200 of his men of the 600 about one-third of them were so wearied and so exhausted that they just couldn't travel on and they probably wouldn't have been very effective in battle had they gone because they just didn't have the capacity whether it was physically mentally whatever maybe they were still so overwhelmed emotionally so it tells us that about 200 of David's men remained behind And the other 400, two-thirds of them, continued pressing on after the Amalekites. And remember, then this divine occurrence happened where they stumble upon this man who had been abandoned, looked very sickly and weak, this Egyptian man, who actually was a servant of the Amalekites. And again, divine appointment. God just so happens to allow David to be moving in the direction and he just so happens the God who coordinates all things that go on as he superintends over everything that happens on this earth in our lives to allow this right person to be right there in the path at the right time so that he could intersect, meet David and his men. David showed compassion and kindness to him, the exact opposite that his cruel master had just shown to him who had left him there for dead. 
And upon David discovering that he was with the Amalekite people, one of their servants, David said, do you know where they're at? Can you take me to them? And lo and behold, he knew exactly where their camp was and said to David, listen, if you promise not to kill me or turn me over, uh, I'll help you. I'll lead you right to where they're at. So again, God working through these things, orchestrating his promises. God, as I often like to say, working in, in very supernaturally natural ways. And so often that is how God works. He works in supernaturally natural ways. Just people we meet and paths that we intersect with individuals and everyday circumstances and situations are so often just marked with the fingerprints of God. You know, so often as God's people, we want, well, God, couldn't you just, who hasn't maybe said this before? I know I've heard people say this before. I wish God could just, couldn't he just like write it like handwriting on the wall? I mean, couldn't he just make it? And I always say, listen, when, when in the book of Daniel, when there was handwriting on the wall, that was a very bad thing. That wasn't a good thing. So you don't want God to have to do the handwriting on the wall, finger to show up, you know, out of the, you know, eternal dimension. And and that was pronouncing judgment and destruction. So that's the last thing you want. If you see a finger of God, run. I mean, as much as you can, that's not a good thing. So often God is just leading us through the still small voice in our hearts. Certainly we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us now. But just through circumstances, these are God's divine orchestrations. And so this man offers to lead David. It says that David attacked them as he went uh, down to the area where they were. And we left off verse 18 and 19 telling us, and as the result of that attack upon the Amalekites, David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away and rescued his wives. Nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them, David recovered all. And why did David recover all? One simple reason, because that's what God promised. God promised that he would do that. And what God promises, God has the power to perform. And it didn't matter whether David went with his 600 men, the way he ordinarily would go to battle. And that would be the efficient, ordinary way that David was used to doing this with all 600 men. So now there's, there's kind of a change in the ranks. You know, they don't have the typical way that they would approach things. Maybe they were missing an, an archer or two or missing, you know, some of the people who are really good at hand-to-hand combat. We don't know the details, but now in, in an unordinary way, kind of in an awkward way, he goes with minimized troops. God's diminished his forces, but yet God gives him a tremendous victory because all we're responsible for, ladies and gentlemen, is one thing thing obedience that's our responsibility when God says something we obey him when God tells us to go we go when God asks us to make ourselves available we make ourselves available and all the power and the resources and the the ability to experience victory and accomplish what God wants for us that's all God's prerogative and responsibility and and God works supernaturally that's why the Bible says that with God nothing is impossible. The key there is the word with. With God, nothing will be impossible. With God. If God's involved, then nothing becomes impossible because he's a God with whom nothing is impossible. So this incredible you know, recovery, God's in the recovery business. They restore, they find their families. They even get back all of their resources. I mean, this incredible, incredible victory. They must have been just thrilled and celebrating and even gained As the result of this, spoils and rewards. Look at verse 20 as our text goes on. It says, So David took all the flocks and herds they had driven before those 
other livestock and said, this is David's spoil. So on top of recovering what they lost, look at this, he actually gains more. That's called grace. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful in our lives if God just let us recuperate the things that we ruined in our lives and that God kind of would just, you know, kind of mercifully restore back some of the messes that we make sometimes. But the wonderful thing is, whether it's in, we see it in the life of Job or here, sometimes God goes above and beyond, the Bible says, what we could ask or think through his power that works in and through our lives. And because God's gracious, David not only recovered all, he actually recovered more, ultimately. He gained more in the midst of his recovery process. And the Lord just has a way of doing that and showing his kindness. So now they've obtained extra flocks and herds and livestock as a part of the spoil of this victory in battle. And verse 21 says, David then came back to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the brook Besur. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. Other translations indicate that he greeted them joyfully. The, the idea here in the, in the language is that David was happy when he saw them. He wasn't disgruntled. David's not upset. You know, sure, you guys leave us out there. You go back and you know, rest and play in the brook while we're out there fighting. There was none of that. When David found them, he was happy to be back home. His heart was thrilled with the victory. There was no concern in his you know, attitude in regards to why they weren't there. They're reunited now. David felt it was probably no doubt as their leader, I believe, my personal conviction, in their best interest to stay behind. I personally tend to believe understanding how, you know, a little bit of how militaries operate and function and, and chain of command. David was their leader. And I'm sure that ultimately David was the man, one, who probably made the final call to say, you know what, this group of you, it would be in your best interest and our best interest if you just stay behind here at the Brook Besour so that you don't end up inhibiting us in what we're going to do because, uh, you know, anyone understands that that can be a danger in battle. It, you know, someone can actually become an inhibition. You know, when I served as a, a police chaplain for the years that I did back in uh, York City when I was, you know, there pastoring, you know, one of the things that was very important when you did a ride along with a police officer, which basically meant that you were in the, you know, the vehicle with them and whenever they got called uh, to anything, uh, you didn't get an opportunity to do much other than just re-secure your seatbelt before they took off and they were on their way to something. And one of the things that was important to recognize, if you responded to an incident or a situation, the last thing you wanted to do was get in the officer's way. The last thing you wanted to do was give him somebody else to have to think about or protect. And one of the things when we would train new chaplains, we'd always tell them, listen, don't go playing cowboy. If you want to play cowboy and police officer, then the chaplain ministry is not for you. <laughs> So, so don't get out of the vehicle with them unless they tell you you can get out of the vehicle, especially if you realize it's a tense situation because you would cause more difficulty for them and you would inhibit their ability to be effective. If they got to worry about protecting you too, because we had bulletproof vests, but no weapons. And I always thought that was strange. <laughs> they used to say it was because we were men of prayer, but I was like, if you're telling me that I got to wear a bulletproof vest, at least can I get a can of mace or something? I mean, <laughs> I mean I'm not a real big guy. The hand-to-hand -hand combat thing is not making me feel real comfortable here. So it's very likely that David said, listen, so that you don't inhibit us, 
Here's what would help. Stay behind with the supplies. And no doubt as they stood behind with the supplies, guess what that meant? That meant the 400 men who traveled onward could do what? They could be more freed up. They could leave additional supplies so they could move more quickly. They could be empowered and more effective because they could leave things behind that could be guarded and taken care of with the 200. And that would empower them as a support system to be able to be more effective in battle themselves. So you can see how the things would sort of cooperatively function together here David sees nothing wrong however you know not all people have the right heart attitude in these things verse 22 we see that then all the wicked and worthless men some of your translations render that troublemakers these individuals some of them among David's 400 who went to the battle uh, they had a, a wrong perspective we see an error in their attitude it says some of the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. So they have a wrong perspective here. They instantly here we see have an error in their attitude. They have a very critical spirit toward those who did not go out and do the same things as them. So they kind of, in almost like a little bit of a self-righteous attitude, hey, Will, you guys were just hanging around the brook Bezur and you know, probably swimming and enjoying yourself. We were out risking our necks in battle and ducking spears and putting our lives on the line. Look, I mean, be thankful. You can have your wives and your children. And, and more than that, they weren't only just saying you could have your wives and children. But they actually here were saying, but you need to depart from us. Maybe you're just, maybe you're just not necessary anymore. We can become the 400 mighty men instead of the 600. So they won't allow them to let them have their families back, but they're actually looking to kind of cut them off and say, look, you, know, you head out and you don't deserve any of the rewards or any of the credit or the victory for what we did. Notice this is, you can see their hearts wrong. They didn't perceive and acknowledge that it was God who gave them their victory and their reward. Do you hear their language? Because they did not go out with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered. So their perspective is wrong because they don't perceive and acknowledge that it was actually God who gave them the victory and the reward. So they're taking all the credit for themselves. And unfortunately, this can be what happens sometimes. You know, they're devaluing the uh, help and the assistance that was supplied by the 200 that stood behind and, and maintained the supplies and enabled and, and empowered them to be able to go out and to be effective in their mission as they went forth to serve. So they're being very critical of them. They don't appreciate them because they didn't do the same things. And sadly, sometimes you know, th this can kind of creep in where we as people sometimes can almost look somewhat kind of critically and, and in a condescending attitude towards perhaps people who aren't doing the same things that we're doing. And we think, well, I mean, we're the ones out here doing this, or we're doing all the work, and they're, and sometimes we can begin to almost develop that same attitude, and we begin to think somehow there's something special about us because we're accomplishing things or participating in things when other people aren't, and, and God here through David is going to correct that wrong attitude. Look what David says in verse 23. He right away reproves this. He says, my brethren, notice he's, he's indicating unity, brethren, we're brothers here. You shall not do so, look what David says, with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered us into our, into our hand, the troop that came against us. So David here has the right response. Notice the right perspective. He gives the credit and the glory for the victory and all the rewards that came 
to the right source, and that was the Lord. He said, look, let's not talk about what we accomplished, what we recovered. David's saying, listen, let's be realistic here. This is what the Lord has given to us. We lost everything. If the Lord didn't promise that we would recover all, we wouldn't have recovered anything. And if the Lord wasn't with us in battle, David is saying, then we wouldn't even have been preserved. There was only 400 of us instead of 600 against the Amalekites. And he says the Lord preserved us and he's the one that delivered us and gave us the victory. So David here with the right attitude gives credit and glory for the victory and all the rewards and fruit to the Lord himself. And whenever we do anything in a cooperative effort under the Lord's leading, that is the right attitude. To recognize it's not what we accomplished or what I went out and did, but no, it's what the Lord does through us. It's how the Lord works through our life and in a cooperative way we get to participate, but he's the one who orchestrates the power and the victory and any good fruit that comes out of it. And David saw the need, no doubt here, of the cooperative partnership and efforts that made things successful. That's why he goes on to say there in verse 24, who will heed you in this matter? He says, who would listen to this kind of a approach that you're going to cut them off from all the reward because you're the one that went out and they stood behind? And then he lays down this principle. He says, but as is his part who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. And so it was from that day forward, he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. So David saw, as I said, that there is this reality in any, whether it's a you know, military battle or any venture or project or you know, whatever it may be, any, any effort or ministry, David saw this need of this cooperative partnership and efforts with different people doing different things in order for something to be successful. And David says here, listen, there are some that are sent out to the battle, but it's necessary that others stay home at, at the base and hold down the fort and, and keep things safe and keep things stable. Again, think about it. What was the reason the Amalekites came in and invaded the area, burned everything with fire and stole all the wives and children in the first place? Because all the men were what? Out in the battle and no one was behind guarding the families and so forth so there was a vulnerability so david had learned that lesson this is that's not smart he realized that you can't just send everyone it is critical he realizes and it is a valuable important thing that though some will go out and engage in the battle and in the fields that others should stay at home to hold down the fort both are essential and both have their important place and so much so that David's saying those who remain behind and stay and enable others to be freed up and go out, they should share equally in the reward of what those who go out to battle and accomplish things would do. That there's this partnership that happens. And again, this is a valuable spiritual principle, I think. David lays it out here. It became a principle for how they would do things as they brought out the rewards uh, for battle when they did so. It became a statute in Israel. And I think this is a very good spiritual principle for serving in the spiritual battlefields of ministry. That, that this is the same. That there are going to be some who are going to go out. Some who will be sent out into the fields, if you would. And there are others who are called and are intended to stay behind 
and to be a supportive role, to, to be able to send out those who go out, whether they're staying behind and praying and, and they're interceding or whether they're empowering someone by being able to free them up to perhaps go out and they listen, you go, I'll stay behind and keep things you know healthy and stable here and keep things functioning at home base the way they should. And, or, or even I think at times, you know, this is a very fitting picture of what happens, for example, with missions. You know, as someone goes to a foreign mission field, as they're sent out to a foreign mission field, it takes many, many people who are willing to stay behind to send them and to support them, to in a sense stay behind with the local body of Christ and to be those who would empower them and free them up to financially enable them. I think of what Paul says to the Romans when in Romans 10, he says, how can they hear unless there be a preacher? And then he says, and how can they preach unless they are sent and again this idea here that the one who goes out to preach and the one who does the work of preaching or missionary work or goes forth you know maybe to some missions endeavor or ministry you know uh, accomplishment that it takes those who are able to send them to empower them to financially support them to pray for them to do what's necessary so they can be freed up to be able to go out and to be efficient and to be effective in that work that they're called to go out and do. But the reward is, is shared the same. And I believe that when we get to heaven, there's going to be a lot of this, that there are going to be people perhaps who may come up to us and, and say, you know what? The reason I'm here in heaven is because you sent that check that time to help out this missionary or that missions organization. And part of what you did got me into heaven here because you sent this person to my village or to my territory and by them being there I heard the gospel and I got saved and only heaven I think will reveal those things but the reward is God's a just judge and a rewarder equally God is going to dole out rewards and the rewards are going to be shared alike there's going to be that sharing of rewards there are going to be many many who, who, who receive equal reward to those who are actually doing the work on the fields who were remaining behind or financially supporting. Paul spoke of this in Philippians 4 where he spoke to the Philippians saying, you Philippians know also at the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only, even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. And he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. So again, Paul saw this and wanted to encourage the people of Philippi by saying, listen, any of the good fruit that's come out of my ministry, church planning, what I've, he's saying, listen, be part of your financial empowerment to enable me to be freed up to do this, he says, the reward's in your account just like it's in mine. And he saw this partnership. And I think this is very important as God's people that we see this and recognize that just like a body has many parts and we all have a function, we all have a part. And we should never diminish or devalue the importance of any function, of any function. In the same way that it's important to lead music or communicate the word of God. Listen, would you agree? It's also important and appreciated when you come in here and the bathroom's not filthy. I bet you appreciate that. Or if you put your little one on the bathroom, I bet you appreciate that it's not a funky public restroom, that it's a little bit cleaner and different. That, guess what? That's because someone who's not standing behind a pulpit and, and preaching in a prominent role, someone, guess what? There are people who come in and clean those toilets. There are people who come in and clean the facility. There are people who do these kind of things and all of these collaborative ministry 
efforts, they all work together in conjunction for efficiency. And guess what? All the reward, all the fruit of anything good that comes, we all share alike in that. We all share together. So we should never devalue anything we do or ever elevate one thing over another as far as its importance. We should recognize we share. I think, you know, in many ways, I think of how many times my wife has played this role in my life where she has willingly freed me up as a man to step out and to serve and to make myself available. And as the result of that, you know, staying behind, you know, with the children and these kind of, and the reward that's going to be received to her for doing that, for being willing to allow me at times when necessary to be out. And again, I deeply appreciate that and I believe God's going to greatly reward it. So just a beautiful, beautiful Old Testament illustration here with David and his men of really, I think, an important New Testament principle as well. Verse 26 says, When David then came to Ziklag, returning back, he sent some of the spoil over to the elders of Judah to his friends saying, Here is a present to you for you of the spoil of the enemies of the Lord to those who were in Bethel and Ramoth in the south and Jatir, to those, verse 28, in those areas, and I'm not going to brutalize all those names since you can't pronounce them either. He sent them to all those different places, down as far, verse 31, as Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. So David, as he returns back, again, he's been blessed, right? God's poured out blessing into his life God's brought prosperity and this demonstrates about David's heart as he gets back now he begins to send out the, the surplus to his friends in the surrounding areas of Judah to his fellow Jews and I think this demonstrates again David's heart that David was a man with a giving and a generous heart he kept an open hand you know as God blessed him he didn't clinch onto it and put it in his pocket and hold it for himself David received extra and surplus, and he thought, you know what? Freely I've received, freely I want to give. And he just had an open-handed attitude. And so he shares of the spoil. Rather than help selfishly indulging himself, he sought to share with others, it says, with his friends and those around him who he had connections to. Just, again, spreading the goodness of God and God's blessing and generosity. A great you know, example of David's hard attitude as a man. And I think as well as a leader, it shows this passage here that David cared about and invested in the welfare of the people because these are the people of the southern area of Judah, the Jews. And here's David showing, I believe, his appreciation for their partnership and support while, guess what he was doing, wandering around the wilderness for the last 10, 15 years. And no doubt as he was in these different areas of Judah, some people would rat out David and say where he was. Remember, we would see that. But apparently some people didn't rat out David and his men when they were hiding in the caves in the wilderness and they probably came to David's assistance once in a while. And they became his friends and they helped him out and probably gave him supplies and they were loyal and encouraging. And David here shows appreciation for partnership and support that he received. And he's acting to me much like a healthy and a good king and leader should before he even holds the position. He just shows he cares about the people. He's not in it to, to use the people. He cares about the people. He's trying to invest in them and do what's in their best interest and welfare and his activities and practices revealed exactly the heart he had as a leader and a king even before he has the role. And I think this is a beautiful thing because you know it's, it's important before somebody has a role, has a position, has a title, I want to see them doing the work before they even possess that. And here David, he's already acting like a good king. So this is an indication he should be the king because he's already behaving like a good king should. 
Well, chapter 31, the passage of 1 Samuel comes to a close here by telling us now the end of Saul's life. It says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines follow hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan. That's sad. Remember, that was David's best friend, the eldest son, who was supposed to be the next king of Israel. Jonathan was killed in battle. Abinadab and Malchashua, Saul's son. So Saul, we're going to see, dies. And all of his heirs end up being killed in the same battle as well. Just the fulfillment of what God pronounced anyway was going to happen, that the judgment of God was going to come upon Saul for his rebellion and his continuous iniquity in rejecting and not listening to God. And now in this battle, just like David said, I'm not going to interfere and take Saul's life, though he had a few chances. He said either he'll die of old age or God will deal with him or he'll die in battle. And exactly again, in a very supernaturally natural way, God just allows this battle to not go Saul in Israel's way and Saul dies and not only Saul dies but all of his children end up dying in the same battle and guess what God just did God just eliminated any opportunity for anyone from Saul's family to ascend to the throne so which makes it very easy then for David to be recognized as the king of Israel and ascend to that position that God wants him to have anyway God eliminated all the issues and all the challenges for him David didn't have to wrestle through, oh my goodness, there are a few of Saul's, Saul's heirs that are still alive and how are we going to navigate this now because I'm supposed to be the next king of Israel but culturally, you know, usually the son is the heir and, and God said, don't worry, I'll just take care of it for you. And God just removed all the obstacles. He just removed any of the things that could have been a complication and a hindrance, again, by just his sovereign intervention and things. And I appreciate that, that when God does stuff, he's very thorough. I mean, just in a very thorough way, God says, listen, trust me, I really don't need your help at all. At all. <laughs> I just, when I, when I want to do something, I'll just be very thorough. I'll take away anyone's issues with it. I'll, I'll take away anyone being able to question it. Nobody could question David at this point because all of them just died in battle. There were no more descendants of Saul to be able to reign upon the throne still. So the battle, verse three, became fierce. And here's how Saul ultimately dies. The archers hit him. Again, very interesting. Here's some random archer launching an arrow and lo and behold, God directed it and it severely wounded Saul. And Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. So Saul realizes he's been hit and he's got a mortal wound. He realizes that these wounds are mortal he's not going to survive, that he's not going to be able to somehow recover from this. And he realizes he's so weakened, he can't run in the midst of battle. So he turns now to his armor bearer and he says to him, listen, again, and this would be true in that day, understanding how the Philistines and, and, unpeg, and pagan ungodly people were in their practices, if you captured not only a, a soldier, but if you captured the king, I mean, you would utterly disgrace him you would torture him. You would do all kinds of horrible, barbaric things to just really torture in a cruel way the one who was the king of the people that you were defeating. And Saul realizes this. So Saul just turns to his armor bearer and he says, look, I'm not going to make it anyway before they find me here. And they torture me for who knows, days or hours afterwards. Just please put an end to my life. Just kill me. Take away my life. And so in a sense, he's asking to, to be put to death 
because of his wounds and injuries being so bad. But his armor bearer, much like the heart of David, he says he would not. He couldn't bring himself to murder the king, to, to slay the king, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore, verse 4, Saul took a sword and fell on it. So here we see Saul, an example of there are a few in the Bible, really, and I have to use the word, attempting suicide. Because we'll see as we get to 2 Samuel chapter 1 that though Saul was already badly wounded and then he fell on a sword, he still didn't die. It's not going to be until an Amalekite actually comes by, finds him in that condition, and he'll actually then rob Saul and actually put him to death and, and finish him by killing him. So Saul, on top of all his wounds, falls on a sword thinking that that would just be a bad gut wound and that would do him in. He, he attempts suicide, but it's a failed suicide attempt. It says in verse 5, however, that his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead. He, he assumed, when he saw that, Saul fall on his sword. The armor bearer assumed, oh my goodness, the king is dead. And then tragically, here's another suicide. And it worked this time. He also fell on his sword and died with him. So again, this reference to the armor bearer committing suicide that we have here in the Bible. And I, and I want to talk about this issue for a few moments as we wrap up our, our time together. Let's just finish the chapter together. But I, since it appears in the scripture, I want to take a few minutes to address the subject of suicide as it's right here in front of us in the Bible by God's record. Verse 7 tells us, And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his men were dead... They forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines then came and dwelt in them. So now they're losing territory geographically. They're gaining ground as the battle is being greatly lost by Israel. The king has died. His sons are dying. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons all fallen dead there on Mount Gilboa. And look what they did. Verse 9. This is when he was dead even. They cut off Saul's head stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. So they're celebrating that ding dong, the king is dead. No pun intended by that, but I mean, this is kind of the idea here. Our God has defeated your God. So they strip off his stuff. They, they decapitate the head off of his corpse, off of his already dead and badly wounded body. Again, they're, they're just looking to disgrace him, to just dishonor him. And then look what they did, verse 10. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, their gods, and then they fastened his body, that's decapitated, they fastened his headless body, his corpse, on the wall of Beth Shan, basically like a, like a, a, a poster, a billboard, an advertisement with all these wounds, there was arrows in his body, he's got a horrible gut wound, his head's been decapitated, and they just hang his body there on a wall for just public disgrace to just demonstrate their victory over Saul and over the people of Israel. Uh, again, just making a mockery of the people of God because they failed and they've fallen. And, and let me just say something. This is exactly what the heart of the enemy always is towards God's people. This is what he wants to do. He wants to defeat the people of God and then make an utter mockery, a public shame just like this. And whenever God's people are defeated in some way, this is exactly what the enemy of our soul wants to do. Kind of much like these Philistines, he wants to just put us to public shame. 
and make it just look embarrassing, disgraceful, and humiliating that somehow God's people have fallen and somehow have failed to be able to be victorious. So this just horrible incident happens. And when the inhabitants, it says, verse 11, of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose from Jabesh Gilead, traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shan. And they came to Jabesh and burned their bodies there with fire and then took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and then fasted for seven days. And again, the idea is, you know, period of grieving the, the fasting for seven days. So notice when this happens, the men of Jabesh Gilead, they're stirred with compassion to still try and give some dignity to Saul and to his royal family because remember, the men of Jabesh-Gilead were the first people who saw when he was doing well, when he first was anointed by God as king. Those were the men that Saul went and rescued when they were in trouble. And so they never forgot what Saul had done for them. And listen, though Saul had become pretty corrupt and pretty, I mean, just unhealthy and I mean just a very cruel and, and and out of control leader in the way he treated the people I mean Saul had done some pretty horrific things at this point but there was still this measure of appreciation and just still this respect for him for what he done and in his death they were still willing to render some dignity to him as a man so they risk their lives they go take down his body and they then, probably because the mortal wounds were so bad, they burned the flesh. Typically, Jews would bury, and they would you know, anoint the body before they would bury it. This is very unordinary to see Jews burning a body. But the interesting thing is you have both happening here. You have them burning probably the flesh because it's so badly you know, uh, wounded, and then they bury the bones to try and give somewhat of a, a sacred you know, disposal of the rest of the remains of his body. So, again, lots of people ask, too, well, I mean, what is the, does the Bible say something about cremation or burial? Well, listen, there's both right in one passage. I, my simple answer to that is this, and, and please don't take this for anything for what it's worth. To me, cremation does to the physical body what burial does. Cremation does to the body in about 30 minutes what burial in the ground does in maybe about three years. The body just disintegrates. This physical flesh, this temporary body, it, it just, it, it, it returns to the dust from which it was originally taken. So I don't think that we should strain over it. There's nowhere in the Bible where there's a prohibition against one form of the disposal of the physical frame of the body in death. Uh, I think it's a personal conviction and we can't make scriptural justification in regards to that. Here you have both happening right in the same passage. Let me just say this as we you know, think through something in regards to kind of you know, our time here finishing First Samuel. Again, here we have this reference, Saul's attempt of suicide, which fails, and then his armor bearer, verse 5, committing suicide as the result of watching what Saul had just done and thinking that Saul had taken his life. Again, I want you to notice that the Bible is not silent about people who were driven to the error, the mistake, the poor decision of ending their lives. We have about you know half a dozen or so references in the scripture. God doesn't try and cover up or hide the fact that there were occasions w w when people chose to end their own lives prematurely that this is something that happened and God again he could just gloss over it in his word that sadly some people we see throughout scripture fell prey to this temptation and made the wrong decision 
to end their lives. The circumstances and the reasons why were different, um, but I think these examples are possibly recorded even in the Bible to help us identify what contributed to that path so maybe we would understand how to avoid falling prey to ending our own life when we find ourselves struggling with the same things. Here we have a reference to Saul doing it. And Saul was someone who, a person who had power and position and wealth, but yet as the result, he became self-absorbed. His life became all about him. His life became all about doing what Saul wanted, when Saul wanted, how Saul wanted, and he became very consumed with having his own way. Again, when he asked his armor bearer to kill him and his armor bearer wouldn't kill him, what did Saul do? He took matters into his own hands. That was Saul. Saul's attitude was, if I can't have my way, I'll find another way to get my way. And so Saul just put himself to death. And he, he was an individual, unfortunately, who just really struggled with needing to be in control of always having his own way. And this sadly led him to a condition where Saul began to become very lonely and, and battling with guilt and regrets. He became very insecure. And in that weakened state, ultimately succumbs to just ending his own life. Rather than facing the last few hours or days of whatever God would have with his life, he took matters into his own hands and tried to end his own life. And then in verse 5, we read his armor bearer. Another person in the Bible that committed suicide. And here we're told nothing else about this man's experiences up to this point, but we see him, what happens? He loses someone that probably was very special to him, King Saul. He was the armor bearer. And that's a tragic event. He watches Saul die. He sees his king die and something very tragic happens in his life. And this triggers a sense of hopelessness in his life. And that hopelessness then became the catalyst to make him feel like it is so hopeless, this is so bad, this is so tragic. The best thing to do, rather than having to face what the future would be because of this tragedy, I just need to escape. I, I, just, I have to escape it. So he just takes the escape route of selfishly ending his own life rather than enduring through the tragedy and the difficulty that happened. And instead of having the faith and the courage to face the future and whatever it may be, instead he decides to take an escape route and to cop out and to selfishly end his own life, take matters into his own hands that were not his to concern because God is our authority and he chose to end his own life rather than face the future. And again, sometimes th this is what leads people to end their lives. R rather than face the difficulty or face the hardship or what they've been subjected to and have the courage to face it and to embrace it and to walk through it, they just instead decide to just escape it and to just put an end to their own lives. And this is a, a wrong thing and a, a deception of the devil lying to people. In 2 Samuel chapter 17, there's a man named Ahithophel who commits suicide. And it says he went to his house and hung himself. And Ahithophel's suicide was the result of the fact that he had dealt with a lot of rejection. You can read the story there in 2 Samuel 17. We'll see it. He dealt with a lot of rejection and pain in his relationships and his family life. And that pain and rejection in his family life is what led Ahithophel to fall prey to the temptation that it would just be best to end his own life. That's what contributed to it. Wrong decision. But it was that pain and rejection of, of family problems that led him to just feel beside himself and it got too overwhelming and he escaped life rather than processing it and enduring it. First Kings 16, there's a man named Zimri there who commits suicide 
and Zimri's story, in Zimri's story, he had made some really poor choices in his life. And because he had made some really poor choices, he knew some really unpleasant consequences were coming down the pike. And sometimes when we make poor choices, we know, we can see the weather forecast, oh, I've made some really bad choices. There are going to be some really hard consequences and circumstances that are going to come as a result of these bad decisions I've made. And Zimri, rather than face the consequences like a man and figure it out, and embrace the, if you would, the, you know, the, the, the spanking or the discipline for the consequences of his poor choices. Instead of embracing it and just figuring it out and recovering through the process, he overreacted and just ended his own life because of the fear of what he was going to face and that somehow it would just be too difficult. And then, of course, the one New Testament we have example of suicide is Judas Iscariot, who the Bible says hung himself. And we all know the story of Judas, predominantly that Judas lived a double life, pretending to be something he wasn't, to keep an image outwardly, when on the inside, something totally different was going on in his life. And Judas, his ultimate thing was he simply just had a heart of rejection towards the Lord. And his heart of rejection towards the Lord made him ultimately think it was in his best interest to end his own life. Listen. All the overwhelming symptoms of these different references to people ending their life in the Bible that drove someone to make that wrong choice to end their own life. The, the situations were all different. They weren't the same, the trigger buttons. And the reality is this. Everybody in life struggles, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody does. Struggles and suffering and feelings and thoughts of fear and anxiety and depression and hopelessness and all these things, we're all susceptible to these things. But let me say something. We are not called to escape suffering. We're called to endure suffering, to embrace suffering as a part of existence on this earth. Everybody, to some degree, at times and seasons, to different degrees, experiences struggles and challenges and suffering. We're not called to escape it. We're called to embrace it and, and to do what we can, to look to God to help us to grow through it and to, to navigate it and to get to the other side of it. And it is always the devil's lying voice. It is a spiritual undercurrent. It is always the lying voice of the devil that convinces someone that the best solution is just to escape by ending your life. Listen, suicide accomplishes nothing. It, it, all it does is cause more problems. It just hurts all the other innocent people who you're attached to who then deal with the guilt and the anger and the pain as the result of your selfish decision if you would choose to end your own life. It never solves anything. It never solves anything at all. And I think it's important that we recognize this because, you know, I'll tell you something, and these are old statistics, but let me just leave this with you to be in prayer. You know, the suicide rate is climbing particularly among our young people. And these statistics are from about two years or so ago when I did a message with our young people about suicide. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among young people between 15 years old and 24 years old. Between 15 and 24, the second leading cause of why 15 to 24-year-olds die is because they choose to die. They choose to die. That's sad. We also know statistically, among deaths for teenagers and young adults, suicide accounts for 20% of all the deaths of teenagers 
and young adults. One in every five teenager or young adults who die, die because they choose to die. They choose to end their own life. We need to recognize this is a prevalent, prevalent issue. It is the second leading cause of death among college students. The the statistics tell us during the course of a year, estimates show 8.3 million people report having suicidal thoughts. This is something everyone to some degree wrestles with and it's something that we need to pray against and we, I think, need to answer the calling like Paul did. Acts 16, let me leave you with this. There when the prison doors were broken open and the jailer realized Paul and his men were going to be free, he was afraid he was going to probably be put to death because the prisoners escaped and it says he was about to kill himself. Acts 16. He was about to kill himself and Paul, in that moment, said... Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Listen, that needs to be our message. We need to tell people who are hopeless and despondent and deceived and confused, do yourself no harm. We're here. We're here for you. We're struggling too. We'll struggle through this together. We'll figure this out together. God help us to be used in that way to spare from these things happening. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this book of 1 Samuel and the truths that you've contained within it for us. And Lord, we thank you for how the Word of God records things for us in regards to every matter of faith and morality and human experience. And God, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to continue to have a biblical perspective and to have your heart towards things and towards people who are wrestling through things around us. Use us, Lord, we ask. And help us now as we worship, Lord. Fill us with the hope and the joy of the Lord that we might be vessels for your honor in this world. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship the Lord.